Welcome to Medicine the Truth, one of our four weekly podcasts in our Fixing Healthcare podcast series. I'm Jeremy Core, host of the Popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a wide range of healthcare topics can be found on his website, robertperlmd.com. Robbie, listeners are enjoying this blend of the latest in medicine combined with ongoing updates on COVID-19. How about one general medical story and one on COVID? Jeremy, the biggest medical story was the most recent report from the Commonwealth Fund. This is a not-for-profit, highly respected organization that compares healthcare data from the most industrialized nations of the world, including the United States. And the information, it was very distressing. You and I are both sports fanatics. And in every sport, as you know, there's a common adage, although the exact metaphor varies by the nature of the competition. In football, we talk about the importance of blocking and tackling. In baseballs, we call it the plays you should make. What these expressions mean is that although we all love the 500-foot home run, and the Hail Mary pass. If you don't execute the fundamentals well, your team is never going to win the division. And this report shows that when it comes to healthcare, the United States isn't executing the fundamentals well. And as a result, we're in last place. The report showed that the U.S. spends approximately $12,000 per American on healthcare, including what is now $1,200 in out-of-pocket expenses. Germany's number two but it's only at $7,400 a year. And our nation now spends three times what South Korea, New Zealand, or Japan spend. Countries with life expectancies five times longer than us. And we're last in avoidable deaths, childhood mortality, and maternal mortality compared to these other 12 industrialized nations. The basics include prevention. Avoidance of complications like heart attacks, strokes, and cancer from chronic diseases. Patient safety and primary care. And there's nothing on the horizon from how we train doctors to the likely improvements in hospital care that is likely to change our failing grade in the foreseeable future. Relative to COVID, I find the most recent data on China interesting. As you remember from recent shows, the country went from near total lockdown any time there was early evidence of infection to a complete laissez-faire attitude. And with the highly transmissible current variants, COVID-19 infected nearly everyone in the country. The government reported 83,000 deaths, but researchers and epidemiologists around the world quickly realized that the only cases that China was counting were people who died in the hospital from lung failure. That omitted the massive number of individuals who died at home. And those who died in hospitals, but they didn't die from lung infection. They died from complications of virus-related myocarditis, a pulmonary embolus. And so the counts were grossly underreported. Teams of global researchers used the available data on the increase in overall death rates in China 
and then made various assumptions about how many of those were likely to be from COVID. And they concluded that the true death toll, it was most likely between one and 1.5 million. Given that China has a total population of close to 1.4 billion, those estimates would put China somewhere in the middle of nations when it comes to overall mortality. About a third the mortality rate of the US, but double that of Japan, South Korea, or Singapore. And that outcome happened, as you well know, despite three years of near complete shutdown in China, resulting in major economic difficulties for the country and its citizens. Let me offer one last thought, because it's in the headlines right now. Speaking about China, new intelligence has prompted the energy department, this is the U.S. energy department, to conclude that the coronavirus pandemic probably began as an accidental laboratory leak in Wuhan. Listeners may remember that we talked about two competing theories in the past, transmission from a bat or a lab leak. We're now three years later, and the debate continues. There are other U.S. government agencies that still think it probably came from a bat or other wild species. You have this energy department who's concluded it came from a lab leak. One thing that nearly all scientists agree upon is that the pandemic wasn't intentional or caused by a biological warfare research effort. Speaking of the end of the pandemic, didn't the U.S. just declare that the COVID-19 emergency was over? Yes, Jeremy. The official announcement is that the COVID-era health emergency declaration will now end on May 11th. Doing so will open the gates for the return of restrictions in many areas that were eased to accommodate the flood of very sick patients coming to doctors and healthcare facilities. It could mean more costs for people needing COVID testing, vaccination, and treatment. The end of the emergency declaration may result in millions of individuals, including a huge number of children who were provided with Medicaid during the pandemic, and they might now lose it as eligibility financial audits are done and uncover changes in family income over the past two to three years. Since the program was put into place, states haven't checked eligibility status for enrollees. Instead, they've been automatically maintained in Medicaid once enrolled, and the states were reimbursed by the federal government for providing this continuous coverage. That's about to change unless Congress takes action. My observation is that on one hand, an emergency declaration can't remain in place once the emergency has passed. But I believe that many of the changes put in place in response to the pandemic should be continued as means to address and really just plaster over the cracks in our broken healthcare system. You may remember before the pandemic, there were too many Americans lacking healthcare coverage. And as a result, they couldn't obtain the medically proven preventive services and the many effective treatments for chronic diseases, ones that can be very effective in preventing heart attacks, strokes, and cancer. There's no question that we have the ability as a country to raise quality, increase access, and, de and decrease costs. But to do so will require a major transformation of how healthcare is delivered. And unfortunately, I don't see any evidence that Congress has the ability to make the improvements needed. As such, probably the best we can hope for is that the federal government will implement temporizing measures 
that extend coverage, possibly through healthcare exchanges, if not Medicaid, and they'll keep them in place until better and more permanent solutions can be implemented, either from inside the medical system or outside the current healthcare world. Jeremy, given the problems the Commonwealth Funds report highlighted, as a patient, who do you believe should lead the process of change needed to make the necessary improvements in healthcare coverage, necessary improvements in care, and the necessary improvements in affordability? Robbie, ideally it should be the government and it should be a bipartisan issue. The issue is that with the lobbying power of big pharma, insurance companies, and other major healthcare companies, it's hard to believe that the government will work to make the necessary policy changes to make a real difference. I honestly think the only thing that could potentially work would be a massive grassroots effort made up of patients, healthcare thought leaders, and change agents. Sadly, I think said hypothetical grassroots movement would have an almost impossible mountain to climb in going against the massive players in healthcare that do not want change. The government ideally should lead this change. I just do not see it happening. Robbie, I heard that a study that showed immunity from being infective was as effective as vaccination. What does that tell us about the best way to be protected? Jeremy, you are correct that recent data has confirmed the efficacy of the immunity provided through becoming sick and recovering. But I don't believe that debating which one alone, immunity through infection or immunity through vaccination, makes sense. The data that I have read shows that the more exposures a person has, the higher the levels of immunity that result, and it can come either from infection or from vaccination. Regardless of whether initial immunity came from infection or vaccination, boosting adds protection against severe disease, hospitalizations, and death. You know, rather than continuing to discuss or debate which is better, which provides greater immunity, I think the question we should be focused on is how best to maintain the immunity of the population and hopefully expand it. I think the answer is likely to be different based on the relative risk that people have when they become infected. As an example for children, the danger of dying from infection it's relatively low. And as such, the added value of booster vaccination is relatively minimal, at least as measured in terms of severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And with new mutants being able to break through immunity, kids are likely to become infected more than once, even when vaccinated. As such, there's a relatively low risk when parents decide to skip boosting in this age group. But for the very elderly, individuals with multiple chronic diseases, and those with compromised immune systems, the danger of becoming infected and becoming severely ill is incredibly high. And that's true whether the initial immunity came from an infection or a vaccination. For people already vaccinated, new research published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal shows that three doses of COVID vaccine reduced deaths in the high-risk group by 90% compared to just two shots. As such, with the foreseeable future, boosters, probably at least annually, will be important in this particular population. And getting one will be helpful 
whether the person first achieved immunity through disease or vaccination. I worry, Jeremy, that the intensity of the debate over which is better, disease or vaccine-generated immunity, is distracting from the data, and that is driven by politics over science. They both will protect people, and they both will boost immunity. The biggest difference is that disease-acquired immunity necessitates getting infected, and that can be risky for, as we said, older or individuals or ones with multiple chronic diseases. Personally, I think that a sore arm for a day or two is better than becoming ill, even if I'm not going to need hospitalization or die. But if that's not someone's choice, all I think is that they shouldn't rec they shouldn't decide to do so because they think that it will better protect them. And they shouldn't do so because they believe the vaccine is dangerous. It's not. They should do it for only one reason, and that's because they choose to take the added risk. And I believe strongly that as a patient, that's their right. Robbie, as usual, what's this episode's newest piece of information relative to kids? The biggest news is the recent debate about obesity in children. As you know, there are several medications that were originally developed to help patients better manage their diabetes. These drugs work in ways that slow stomach emptying, diminish hunger, and keep blood sugar low. One of the side effects of these once a week IV administered drugs is weight loss. And despite the over $1,000 price tag a month, a growing number of people who could afford to pay out of pocket have done so as a means to lose weight. Many debates have raged about these drugs, including whether insurance companies should pay for them. And if so, for what indications? Ethicists have pointed out the ways that this type of treatment can increase discrepancy in care based on socioeconomic factors. And at least short term, how the use of these medications for weight loss has created a shortage of this important medication for people who need it to manage their diabetes. But relative to kids, the availability of these drugs led a group of pediatricians to recommend a very aggressive approach to excess weight in children. This report from the American Academy of Pediatrics shifts viewing obesity from a choice to a disease. It recommends intense treatment, including 26 hours of education for families and kids, even those under the age of five, plus availability of these new weight loss drugs starting at age 12 and offering bariatric surgery to teens as young as 13. At the same time, eating disorder specialists have concerns and they believe the harm from telling very young children that they have a disease and basing that solely on their weight could have psychological implications and create psychological harm. Many experts are pointing to the weight gain estimated to be at least two thirds of the loss whenever the medications are stopped. And they worry that will mean that once these kids start intravenous medications, it would be for the rest of their lives. This debate is likely to remain intense with lots of finger pointing by the experts on each side. One of the issues that I don't think has been adequately discussed 
is the massive increase in the number of obese kids over the past few decades. Given that our genetic makeup doesn't change that quickly, this potential disease can't be solely related to our DNA. As such, we need to ask, what are the environmental factors that have led to a prevalence of obesity and magnitude that we face today? We need to ask, should we start with drugs and surgery, or should we instead focus on the causes of the problems, the things that are different in society now, and reverse them? Without question, not blaming the child is compassionate. It's the right thing to do. But not improving the environment, be it related to diet or socioeconomic factors, to me seems an inadequate solution to a very important problem. I'm not convinced that making this a medical disease rather than a societal one is the best place to start. Robbie, let's go back to COVID-19. Are there any recent information on rebound symptoms in patients who take Paxlovid? Jeremy, treating patients with Paxlovid soon after infection has been shown to reduce the need for hospitalization and the risk of death in unvaccinated patients. Its use in the relatively healthy individuals, however, has been debated. On one hand, some people ask, what can you lose if the side effects are minimal? Others point to the cost and they don't see the advantages as worth the price unless the patient hasn't been vaccinated or has multiple chronic diseases. In between these two extremes are patients and clinicians who worry about what is referred to as rebound, getting sick again after finishing the five-day course of oral treatment. A recent article in the Lancet Journal of Infectious Disease presented research that indicated taking the drug didn't augment the likelihood of a rebound exacerbation for the disease. The study included the risk of rebound was similar for patients who took the drug and those who did not. In both cases, between 4.5 and 6.6% of patients saw the reemergence of symptoms and an increase in the viral load in the nasopharynx after a period of recovery following initial infection. One problem with the study is that all the patients were severely ill and hospitalized. As such, the results may not be generalizable to outpatients with more mild cases. Jeremy, as a patient, let me ask you, which of the following would you be most comfortable doing to decide if you should take a drug like Paxlovid? Would you check the internet for articles? Talk with someone at the CDC? Ask the doctor who most often takes care of you? Or would you consult ChatGPT? Robbie, I'm spoiled in that I'm friends with people like you and other people in healthcare who are their top in their respective fields, and I would likely ask one of you. Uh, most people, however, do not have this luxury, and if I did not have the network I have, I would always go straight to my primary care doctor who I have a good relationship with and fully trust. Uh, I believe situations like this are why it is important to have a good primary care provider who you like, knows your health background, and trust. This should always be someone's first point of contact if they have questions about their health and what medication they should or should not be taking. Robbie, both on this podcast and our Diving Deep show, we've talked about how retail giants Amazon, CVS, and Walmart are taking steps to be able to not only augment medical care as we know it, but take it over. What's new? 
Jeremy, you've described the trend extremely well. And since our recent shows, the pace of merger and acquisition is accelerating, not slowing down. The most recent example this month was CVS buying the primary care provider Oak Street Health for $10.6 billion. And as is true for many of the other acquisitions these retail giants have made, Oak Street serves mainly senior citizens enrolled in Medicare Advantage, the capitated Medicare option. Today, Oak Street has clinics in 169 locations in 21 different states, and it's projected to add 40 new clinics in 2023. And with CVS's previous acquisition of Signify, a 10,000 doctor group providing virtual and in-person home health, the synergies among the different parts of the growing CVS organization are massive. Similarly, United Healthcare, that reached a 10-year agreement with Walmart to partner together, just agreed to buy the LHC Group, a huge provider of home care, and they purchased it for $5.4 billion. By the time you add up $3.9 billion for one medical that Amazon bought, $8 billion for Signify and $10.6 for Oak Street, and the $5.4 billion for LHC Group, you're at $25 billion over the past few months. And that's not counting close to a dozen other deals these retail giants are currently discussing. And rounding out the big three, Amazon that we just mentioned, completed its acquisition of One Medical without a major challenge from regulators. And as you know, One Medical has 220 clinics in 27 markets with nearly a million members and the potential to expand rapidly in the future. All of these deals are likely to come under continued scrutiny in the future. But so far, the view is that these companies are making these acquisitions to benefit customers, not gain monopolistic market control as, as simply as a means to raise prices. Already, United Healthcare has 60,000 employed physicians, and that's not counting tens of thousands more through its various networks. Although estimates vary, if you want to provide medical care to a population of people in a given location, you can do so with about one doctor for 500 individuals. You, know, you can think of a town, maybe with 100,000 people. That would equate to 200 doctors, maybe 60 in primary care, 90 specialists, 30 providing diagnostic services, 10 focused on the hospital and 10 in mental health, or some other equivalent distribution. And if we assume that the one to 500 ratio works, with 60,000 employed physicians, United can theoretically deliver care to 30 million people, or one in 10 insured Americans. We're not talking about a little bit here or a little bit there. We're talking about a major venture into the totality of our nation's healthcare delivery. Robbie, I was listening to a podcast about this acquisition, and the guest was talking about how much CVS overpaid for a primary care practice. Assuming this person was correct, why do you believe it made sense? Jeremy, I think that many of the skeptics are viewing this acquisition process and the other things that the retail giants are doing from the context of a standalone deal. And the critics are right hard to earn significant money from primary care alone. As you know, primary care only accounts for about 6% of total healthcare spend. But 
the real question and what I think they're missing is how much of the other 94% does primary care influence? How much of the dollars spent in hospitals and on specialty care could be eliminated through well-provided primary care? And when I look at it, the answer is quite a bit. So let's just say that maybe 60% of healthcare spend is done either in hospitals or through specialists. Taking out 10% of this demand through prevention, better management of chronic diseases, and increased coordination of care, that would double the total dollars available for primary care. And it would prove highly profitable in a capitated reimbursement system. And I think that's the real long-term goal of these companies. And I think that what many people are missing is the big picture. Robbie, what else is happening in medicine? Unfortunately, Jeremy, we're seeing major increases and wide disparities in mental health problems. New data from the CDC pointed out that not only are the total numbers going up, but for some groups in the United States, the number of suicides is soaring. More specifically among Native Americans, the suicide rate increased 26%. And for Black and Hispanic people, 19.2 and 6.8% respectively. Difficulty with access for mental health services during the pandemic likely has contributed to this problem. But so has growing demand. Researchers found that mental health concerns as a percentage of medical visits have risen from 10.7% to 15.9%. And most likely these numbers, they're just the tip of the iceberg. And in a second worrisome report from the CDC, federal researchers found that teenage girls across the US are, and I quote them, engulfed in a growing wave of violence and trauma. What the report showed is that nearly one in three high school girls seriously considered suicide. And that's up 60% from a decade ago. One in six said she was forced to have sex against her will, an increase of 27% from only two years ago, which was the first time the CDC tracked this metric. And combining all this information, it's clear our nation has a mental health crisis without a plan in place or anything on the horizon that's likely to achieve success. Jeremy, mental health issues exist across the country. There is no question that people are suffering and they're finding it harder to cope. But in your opinion, how do we draw a line between what is the responsibility of the healthcare system to address this important problem versus what is the responsibility of the government and community programs to take the lead? Robbie, I think this is a very difficult question to answer. I think significantly more should be done on both fronts. As much as I think this has changed over the years, there is still a massive stigma around men mental health issues. Many people are embarrassed to admit they have mental health concerns. Many people are scared to discuss with a family member or friend that they're concerned that they might be struggling with a mental health issue for fear of offending them. I think we still have a very long way to go in fighting this stigma. 
I think the government should be doing significantly more to fight that stigma via community outreach programs, TV commercials, etc. I feel like when it comes to health systems, I feel like a mental health check should be part of the yearly physical or any doctor visit. When I go to the doctor for something routine, they always check my blood pressure, weight, and pulse. I think part of these routine checks should include the primary care doctor asking patients how things are going in your home life or with your job. Are you facing any extra stress or grief in your life or anything like that? So they can try to spot if there is some mental health concern so they can refer them to the appropriate mental health professional and then follow up with the patient to make sure they did end up going to said mental health professional. Robbie, what else is new relative to American healthcare? Jeremy, in medicine, we continue to find examples of where more isn't better. A recent study published in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine found that for older women with low-risk breast cancer, radiation therapy with its debilitating side effects could be skipped without negatively impacting survival. In the research, the group studied were 65 years and older with early-stage disease that was responsive to hormonal therapy. Ten years after surgery, the women who were treated with radiation in addition to hormonal therapy failed to live longer than those who weren't. Both groups had an 81% survival rate. This finding in women that aggressive treatment doesn't add value for low-risk breast cancer, it duplicates similar data that watchful waiting in men with low-risk prostate cancer proves equally successful as surgery, and it avoids the risks of impotence and urinary incontinence. And researchers are now looking to figure out whether younger women with low-risk breast cancer can also skip radiation treatments. Robbie, we talked at our show Diving Deep about how hospitals use M&A to raise prices. A listener asked if we could explain something he read about, site neutrality. Jeremy, this is an important issue, and I appreciate the listener writing in because it directly impacts the cost of medical care. Although we think of hospitals relative to inpatient services, over half of their revenue comes from providing outpatient care. And for many hospitals, this is the source of much of their profitability. The reason it's so profitable is that hospitals currently can charge the same per test or treatment rates for outpatients as they do for inpatients. Let's take maybe an MRI or CT study that a hospital might charge $1,000 for, while an outpatient facility in the community would charge half because the patients are healthier and able to walk in rather than having to be transported by a stretcher. But if hospitals can do the same thing for outpatients at an outpatient site on their campus, they obviously would find it very profitable to be paid at this much higher inpatient rate. Hospitals say they need this added revenue to maintain financial viability. Critics say the added payments are wasted. They point out that the reason hospitals today are spending billions of dollars to buy physicians' practices is to generate this added profitability by getting the community doctors, once acquired, to refer to their hospital's outpatient sites and then being able to charge these inpatient rates. Estimates are that Medicare alone would save over $100 billion over the next decade from cost neutrality, and patients with private health coverage would most likely reap similar benefits. Of course, this is not a new issue. Both the Obama and Trump administrations focused on this issue. They looked at the question of how much is charged and paid for patients when they go to doctor's office visits. And what they noticed that what 
was that when a hospital sets up an outpatient office, even at a site away from the inpatient facility, it continues to charge and get paid much higher rates for the visit than a doctor's office in the community. When you really unpack all this, it goes back to the idea that it's simply more expensive to provide medical care in a hospital. But these sites are increasingly, for all intent and purpose, the same as a doctor's office anywhere else. And yet, as we said, the government and most insurance companies continue to pay significantly higher reimbursement rates. My take is that the dozens of ways that hospitals justify excess prices in one area to offset supposed inadequate dollars in another obfuscates how money is being spent. And I see it as getting in the way of generating added efficiency. As an example, if an inpatient facility has to make an OR available 24 by seven, you could imagine that it would result in higher costs per case than just doing surgery during the day in a surgery center. And you might expect that hospitals would charge more when patients have procedures done at night. But rather than charging an elevated rate during the day and the night, I think they would be better off charging a differential rate so we could understand the cost of this night surgery that was mandated, that was not being able to be done in a surgery center during the day. And I predict that if more accurate cost accounting were performed, we'd find that many of the excuses that are given are just that. And without the ability to cost shift, what we'd see is that hospitals would be forced to confront the duplication of services and the inefficiencies that exist, and they would then go on to eliminate them, lowering the total cost of medical care in the United States. But instead, the lack of site neutrality plasters over the problems, and we just continue to do the same inefficient approaches to medical care now as in the past, and likely so into the future. What else is new relative to medical practice? Jeremy, if you think back to the pandemic, you may remember that there was a big drop-off in the number of patients receiving cancer screening, and people were worried we'd see an epidemic of cancer deaths as a result. Researchers looked at hundreds of thousands of medical records to see what actually happened. And as strange as it sounds, two positive outcomes were found. First, screening has returned to normal now that people uh, perceive the pandemic as being behind them. And at least so far, there's not been any increase either in the number of cancers or how advanced the cases are. What our nation saw in year one of the pandemic was a 94% decrease in breast and cervical cancer screening and an 86% decrease in colon cancer screening. This led to a reduction in the number of cancers found during that time period but we appear to have caught up in year two. And since most of these tumors progress slowly, the 12 month or so delay hasn't proven at least visibly harmful. It's too early to be sure what this research means. Possibly screening less often than currently recommended might be equally efficacious. On the other hand, maybe the impact of the delay will simply take longer to manifest itself but at least so far, that has not occurred. Robbie, listeners are very interested in our discussion about ChatGPT 
What's happened since then relative to medicine? Jeremy, it's impossible to talk about this generative AI in the singular context of medicine. As you know, both the number of people using this technology and the comments about it have continued to increase rapidly. A New York Times reporter who used Microsoft's Bing search engine that relies on ChatGPT reported a bizarre conversation he had and the inappropriateness of some of the answers. And then on the other hand, I keep hearing from more and more doctors who are using it to help them find obscure diagnosis for patient symptoms and to personalize medical advice for individuals from different backgrounds. One thing is certain, this technology isn't going away and it will revolutionize healthcare as we know it. What's unclear is the impact that the next generations of generative AI will have and exactly how physicians will use them. A sentiment I'm hearing often is that we can't be sure whether doctors or ChatGPT will be better able to make diagnoses and recommend treatment in the future. But it's certain that doctors plus ChatGPT will be superior to doctors alone. Robbie, any parting thoughts? Jeremy, increasingly in healthcare, the gap by income and by gender is becoming clearer. A recent report from the National Bureau of Economic Research shined a bright but harsh light on this problem. In a detailed study of 2 million California women, researchers compared maternity mortality for first-time mothers between black and white women and broke it down in each group by wealth. And the numbers, they're just disconcerting. As people might guess, wealth matters when it comes to the likelihood that mother and child will survive childbirth and the subsequent 12 months. Wealthier white women and the newborn child had half the mortality of poorer white women. And for black moms and their kids, poor families experienced 50% more deaths than wealthy black families did. These differences in outcome held true, even when the wealthy and poor women gave birth in the same hospital. And the gap was even more impressive because newborns of wealthier mothers, regardless of race, were more likely to be born premature and at higher risk since moms were on average much older than poorer first-time mothers and experienced a higher rate of twins, most likely a result of giving birth following fertility treatments, including IVF. But shockingly, race was an even bigger factor than wealth when it comes to overall maternal mortality. Wealthy white women and their kids experienced a mortality rate of 173 deaths per 100,000 births. Wealthy black women and their kids, the number was 437, nearly three times as high. And this data wasn't the result of factors like age or marital status. And this rate for wealthy black women of 437 deaths per 100,000 births was significantly higher than for poor white women and their children, whose mortality was 350 per 100,000. In total, poor black moms and their kids died at the highest rate of 653 deaths per 100,000 births, which was four times greater than wealthy white mothers and their children. 
The researchers concluded that the much higher mortality for black women and their children resulted from racism, not just in society overall, but in medicine. Data show that even when money isn't an issue, black patients are provided sophisticated treatments less often than white patients with identical problems. And you may remember the story of Serena Williams, who had tremendous difficulty getting timely care when she suffered a pulmonary embolus following childbirth, demonstrating that fame and wealth failed to close the gap. Dozens of studies have demonstrated the poorer care is provided to black patients when compared to white individuals with identical health issues, regardless of coverage, education, or financial resources. But remarkably, this difference in outcomes, it completely disappears when the treating physician is black. Overall, the United States has the highest maternal and child mortality among the wealthy industrialized nations of the world. The mortality in the United States is twice as high as the second worst country and four times as high as 12 of the world's other wealthiest nations, according to data from the Commonwealth Fund. As we've discussed in Fixing Healthcare, the poor clinical outcomes reflect a broken system and an outdated culture of medicine. Racial disparities and unaddressed social determinants of health are stains on America's fabric. Together, they exert three to four times greater impact on people's clinical health and overall well-being than the medical care provided. This report from the National Bureau of Economic Research aligns with dozens of others demonstrating the problems that exist. And yet despite this evidence, little has been done to correct the imbalance. As a nation, we believe we provide the same excellent health care to all Americans. Unfortunately, there isn't a shred of evidence to support that belief. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcasting apps, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the hosts, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to uh, that. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, and have a great day. Or sorry, thank you for listening to Medicine the Truth, and have a great day.